This is Dead Air, the unofficial Grateful Dead radio program for the official releases. You can always check us out online at deadairradio.org. And we are going to take a trip. We've got a lot to cover, so let's jump into it. My name is Maura McCoy, and I am the producer of Olin Poly Hippie Odyssey. And I'm Greg Gibbs, and I'm the director of Olin Poly Hippie Odyssey. And uh, we're partners in life. Uh, life partners and uh, it's been a very collaborative project for for the two of us we sort of had equal um, input in the film and very much worked into our relationship it's been quite a project we're happy it's over in many ways as far as being in the can and being out there It's a very important historical site. It's three miles north of Novato, which is in northern Marin County, north of San Francisco. It's basically the last place you pass before you cross over into Sonoma County on the 101 highway, freeway. It's got a history dating back hundreds, if not thousands of years. They've found artifacts there from the Miwok tribe that has made its home there for going way back. We were very much inspired to do the film by going to the San Rafael Museum. The Marine History Museum. The Marine History Museum that had a small little exhibition that showed the all the different eras and had artifacts from all the different eras. It was an exhibition of Olimpali artifacts. And that was the inspiration. It was, wow, what an incredible place. When the Spanish came along, it was... They were missionized. They were carted off to the missions, then eventually got turned over into the, shall we say, the the white landowners ended up uh, purchasing it. And they uh, maintained the, the legacy of the Miwok tribe in that they preserved this adobe structure that was built there. The oldest adobe home in Northern California. North of uh, San Francisco. And it was the only land grant ever given to a Native American Indian, which was signed by Abraham Lincoln. And the adobe structure was also the place where the uh, Bear Flag Revolt took place, where the only death of the Bear Flag Revolt. And the Bear Flag Revolt was basically the founding of California. So you could say that California was found at this one place. And then in the Victorian era, a clapboard house was built around the adobe structure to preserve it and then later in the at the beginning of the 20th century the first stucco home was built around the clapboard which was around the adobe so it's three houses in one and it was also the first electrified house in northern california it was owned by the first dentist of San Francisco. And that plays a big part in the story because of the tragedy that happened toward the end of the stay of the Chosen Family when the structure burned and revealed the adobe hidden inside. And that led to it becoming a state park. Olin Poly was owned, believe it or not, by University of San Francisco, which is a Catholic University, and they happened to buy the property 
I'm not sure why, but they used it as a retreat initially for their for their brotherhood. And they would go up there and do their vows of silence or whatever and have their different retreats, which is one of the reasons they built a dormitory up there that we ended up using for our bedrooms and was, as I say, it was tailor-made for a commune because there were all these bedrooms and a communal bathroom outside in a building outside of the, the main mansion. Um, but uh, USF was just renting the property. They were tr- at that point trying to recoup any kind of income they could out of it. And they were renting it to for like the dead were only able to rent it for six weeks. That's why they were only there for six weeks, because that was their term of their rental. After that, they USF was rented to different groups and camps and events. And then when my father was started looking for a place in 67, at that point, they were looking for a longer term renter. And that was when it was shown to my father by this real estate agent who obviously represented USF. And they actually wanted him to buy the property. They thought, well, here's a millionaire. We can get rid of this place finally. I think they were looking to to get rid of it. So he quickly told them, I'm not able to buy it. I'm not really interested in buying it, but I would like to rent it. So they did make arrangements with him to rent the mansion and part of the estate. Ultimately, he ended up renting the whole almost uh, 700 acre property. It's a beautiful, all of it, all of which is now the park. It's beautiful historic barn, historic old structures from when the the aristocrats, the Victorian aristocrats lived there and, and built the estate and they were called the Burdells. I wanted to start the story 6,000 years ago <laughs> and work your way up to the 60s. <laughs> But uh, as we started, you know, putting it together and, and kind of inserting historical sort of a, a parallel narrative. Balancing those two sides of the story was really difficult. It just became a distraction from, not a distraction in that it wasn't important, but that it took away from the primary focus of the story, which is really a man's cathartic journey to find himself inspired by the 60s and the summer of love and dropping out. We had a struggle as we were beginning to put the film together about how much of the history of, of Olam Pauli to include because it has such a amazing and rich history that we were initially going to include a whole historical uh, section, you know, to the film. And we just realized we wouldn't have the time and it would kind of d- distract from our from our other story that we we just ended up using, uh, focusing on that opening sequence for the most part. But we tried to weave it back in where we could. But it does have an amazing history and it is now a state historical parks. We actually interviewed a California State Park archaeologist at the time. He had some wonderful information and stories, and he found these records that uh, he had found, record albums that had melted in the fire uh, that he had excavated, if you will, and preserved and thought were important historical artifacts and was kind of ridiculed by his colleagues at the time because they, in the 80s, nobody really thought that hippie history had any importance and that anybody would even care or be interested in that. So Breck Parkman, he was a great interviewer. 
hopefully someday we'll tell the whole history of Owen Pauly. Uh, the history section, we decided to do a, a recap in the beginning to set it up to sort of establish what was at stake when this, these tragedies happened and the fire. So at the beginning, we kind of roll through the history you know, starting 6,000 years ago, to and, and bring it up to the point where Don McCoy enters into the Olin Pauly history. And that seemed to fit well. When you go to Olin Pauly today, uh, they have a museum and, and visitor center. And, of course, part of that display is about the Chosen Family Commune and some of the artifacts that Breck Parkman excavated that he found that were basically our old belongings, uh, you know, some toys and shoes and other roach clips and beer bottles. And it's actually quite interesting when you look at it, I think, for future generations, too, to look back and just to see how we lived and and that that's part of the museum there is is really, I think, kind of cool. This was one of the first communes, uh, and of course, communes spread across the country during that period. We ended up at Olin Poly kind of serendipitously. They had very lofty goals of having, you know, a utopian society, getting the children out of the whole political situation. Outside forces and society at large. And the country and uh, the social upheaval that was going on. As the more and more they were finding out about what was going on up at the commune, which really wasn't, there was some illegal activity, obviously, which was drug use, pot mainly. The local government, the local police made it their mission to really bring down and get rid of the Chosen Family Commune because they saw it as a blight on their community, which was unfortunate. In retrospect, if you look back, maybe that's why people were forming communes out in Olima and more out in the wilds, if you will, of West Marin and, and in areas where they wouldn't undergo such scrutiny. Olimpali is somewhat remote, though. It, it was an ideal place. One of the reasons it was so great for a commune is that it was outside of the main, the confines of the city limits or the town. And even though we would obviously go into town for shopping and ice cream and things like that. It was very freeform. There were no rules necessarily. And the children had, their opinions mattered just as much as the adults. Everything was equal. Everything was, they strived to make things, to live in this perfect, peaceful world that as we know, it just is unattainable, ultimately. I've always said that the most interesting era of American history is the late 60s because of all the things that went down. We were lucky to get Rosie McGee, who, of course, was uh, with Phil Lesh at the time with the Grateful Dead. And she was able to tell the story of how they you know, came to live there in the summer of 66. Rosie did have that wonderful comment about how 66 was really when everybody was. It was still a, such a small enough community that everyone kind of knew everybody. And they all really were about peace and love. And by the time Monterey Pop had happened and the world got clued into this whole movement, it just became overwhelmed. Of course, the media didn't do any favors there. And the diggers, of course, they were at the forefront of the movement in 66 and creating this communal and sharing atmosphere of what the, at the forefront of the counterculture movement 
but they were also there in 67 and trying to fight back against the the mediaization and the all the crowds and the people that were coming to San Francisco as a result of the summer of love and the publicity that it got. Yeah, they actually staged as we have the the death of the hippie because it become it become, you know, a cliche and today that word is still kind of a cliche. The real true meaning, you know, I think that's what the story touches on is this is this is what it was all about before it became not corrupted in a way. We kind of think that uh, Olin Pauly and it was almost like kind of a microcosm of the whole San Francisco and the Bay Area movement, which if you feel that it really started in, in 66, had its high point in 67, 68, and kind of crashed and burned in 69 with Altamont, Olin Pauly really follows that same timeline the commune did. That's one thing we say that it's a microcosm. We call it the greatest hippie story that's never been told. This is focused on the story of Don McCoy. It's a really kind of almost, I wouldn't say universal story, but a very relatable story about a man who just decides to make a big change in his life, who keeps an open mind about things, and who really lets his life go into a different direction. Dropped out. Who has money but decides that money isn't the most important thing. He inherited a lot of money and he gave it all up. It's more about family. It's about about community, about, community, about finding people that you trust and love and want to help. It was very innocent and freeform. And that, to me, is really what the whole hippie philosophy was and is all about. And it it's really just kind of about how he had this dream. Maybe it was a pipe dream, a foolish dream, but nevertheless, he and a lot of other people at that time saw that maybe we could take some steps towards transforming a society to a more a sharing, open society, echoing John Lennon's imagine that we could come together and share the world. It was such a different time at, at that time. It it couldn't happen today, uh, let's put it that way. And uh, that, I think, is the most interesting aspect to it in, in that it, it was so much of that time. And it was the nexus of that underground movement, that uh, counterculture. This was the nexus. This was a real, it gets to the real roots and uh, core of the hippie movement. only at the commune for really a year a year and a half so it, it was uh you know it wasn't it wasn't that big of a, a a part of my childhood i obviously had traditional schooling up to that point and and after that so but uh yeah it was a it was an interesting way to look at it the uh not school that they established at Olin Pauli 
What I would say about the not school, the way I approached it was, I was one of those kind of goody two-shoes kids who liked to read and was good at math. And so I kind of was able to take advantage of the not school and wanted to go to class and learn and, and help the other kids. I got through it pretty well. Our teacher was wonderful, but it really depended. The not school model obviously depends a lot on how motivated you are to begin with. And at that age, that's right when a kid really knows whether they're going to be doing well in school or, or maybe they don't care as much about school. So I enjoyed the not school and I really just kind of took the lead on uh, when classes were with the teacher and she brought in textbooks. Uh, she tried to make it just as a professional, normal school as regards to teaching materials as she could because she came from a traditional teaching background. But we were also given things like life drawing and art classes <laughs> and to our, to, our, to our embarrassment, high embarrassment as a 10, 11 year old boys and girls, you can imagine when they brought a nude adult model into the <laughs> class and we were told to sketch that, it was just, it was very distracting, let's just put it that way. So, so the adults had really good intentions. There was a, an artist there. He was a sculptor named Jack Markley, who had two daughters there. We were taught jewelry making. We were taught um, beading. Everybody, of course, at the time loved making bead necklaces and so forth. Metal work we did. So it was really amazing what was kind of there for us that was made available to us. And it really did. I think that the children really were a focus of the program, if you will, of here's what we want to do with this commune. We want everybody to be able to, my father basically wanted to use his money to let this chosen group, chosen family, meaning they chose each other, but also they were somewhat chosen by my father and the friends that he started the commune with to say, hey, you're, we like you. You're an, you're an interesting and a talented person in your way. Come and join us and we'll create this community where we can create art and listen to music and and be and, free. It and was about free. freedom. And include the children in that as part of their education. I grew up in a conservative, Catholic, strict household. I have nine brothers and sisters, very traditional. And um, Maura grew up in a commune, and she's much more put together than I am. And if you see the photos in the film of, of the schoolroom that they created, it was amazing um, how special that place was as a place to be for teaching and, and to go to school. It was, it was wonderful. That was the formal dining room of the mansion. And we converted the, the solarium area into our kind of a dining hall. But uh, the schoolroom was in the what was meant to be the dining room of the mansion. So it was a beautiful old building.
mind you, this was a group of people who were a lot of them from the entertainment world. They were performers. They were artists. They were avant-garde. My mother was hanging out with, with like I say, the poets and the beatniks and the kind of the the avant-garde intelligentsia. Uh, she wanted to. She had and created a salon there that where she wanted everybody who was anybody in that milieu to come and and have a place to meet and share ideas. So we were being exposed to all that. And that was the world that we were traveling in. And the Grateful Dead were, were very much part of that too. And and Phil Lesh came from a very experimental jazz background. And, and everybody was experimenting in so many different ways and just trying to all types of different things. Things like the nude wedding. I mean, that to me seems like a very unsurprising and natural thing. If people are uh, used to going in the nude to go swimming or we weren't nudists necessarily, but it was not frowned on. So uh, so that just seemed like a, a funny thing. And we love the story that Carol, who was the woman that tells that story and was the bride in that scenario, tells about the officiant, Tony the Tiger, showing up with a, a big boa constrictor around his neck. And, and that's kind of something that you think, well, you're going to have a nude wedding? What else can I do to bring some <laughs> <laughs> something even more interesting to that uh, that event? So. Yeah, that's a great story. We were so thankful that she had those photos to share with us. And we want to send our best thoughts to her as she looks down from above. Again, we were so lucky to get an interview with her. um, And she's now passed away. So uh, she was just a wonderful someone to include in the film. The surprising thing is that they've all, all the kids have turned out fine, you know, have turned out to be uh, upstanding citizens and just, you know, smart and well-educated. You know, it's not the first thing I say when I meet people, let me put it that way. Um, I, uh, you really, you know, once I've gotten to know people better as friends, uh, you know, occasionally I might mention it more like, uh, hey, yeah, I'm on the, hey, oh, you like the Grateful Dead, I'm on the back cover of Oxymoxo. That famous, one of the greatest album covers of all time <laughs> with the Rick Riffin on the front and the picture on the back then you they say well you know then you don't even have enough time then you have to make a movie to let them know how you came to be on the back cover of Oxymoxo because it is such a involved story and and there's so much there there's a little side story I as a I was a deadhead in the early 80s and uh, I, I always looked at that girl, that blonde girl sitting next to Jerry on the back of Oxamoxua. <laughs> wow. I'd love to meet her someday. Let's just say that. And that was Mora. Right. <laughs> that's a fake story, by the way. That's, that's not, not that's true. Oh, you never looked at the little girl. I did. <laughs> I, what do you mean it's fake? Yeah, I happen to be sitting right next to Jerry. We have a wonderful kind of story about the taking of that photo by uh, Tom Weir, no relation to Bob, who was a go-to hippie, you know, cool photographer at the time for for all the hipsters. And uh, he gathered the group. They came to the Olin Poly one day completely unannounced. They said, hey, uh, to all of us that were just kind of hanging out that day, hey, come on up on the hill with us. We're going to go take a photo now. We had no idea what it was for. 
as my sister explains in the film. And for years, I looked at that photo and I was wondering, who's that guy in the back with the sunglasses on? Who's that kind of random, shady-looking character, I thought? And then we, I started collaborating with a, a guy who writes a blog and it was his mission to identify everyone who was in that photo. So I spoke with him, Rosie McGee spoke with him, and we were able to identify that that guy in the back is Vince Guaraldi. Apparently he was good friends with the dead and they invited him to come along. But the other interesting thing about that photo and what we, we don't really talk about it in the film. No, we don't, but, but yeah. uh, the little girl in the front has always been known to be Courtney Love, but... We were able to definitively debunk that and identify that as Stacey Kreutzman, Bill's uh, daughter. So uh, apparently they were born a, within a week of each other, uh, she and Courtney Love. And Courtney Love, I guess, has been kind of put on the spot a few times and has not t- bothered to take the time to deny that it's her. But then again... Well, her, her father, Hank Harrison, was uh, a manager of the dead. Later. The, uh, la- a little later. later. Yeah, a little yeah. later. Rock Scully was still right. a manager. And she was too young to remember if she was in that photo or not anyway. so It's just an, an amazing coincidence that the dead, when they left Olin Polly, they moved into the city. 710. They found uh, this, uh, I want to say it was like a, an apartment house at 710 Ashbury. And just coincidentally... My father had just bought a house for my mother because she, when they separated, my mother wanted to go be in the city and she want, she was becoming friends with the poets and the beatniks and the different musicians, Hell's Angels. She was meeting the diggers. It was all this kind of, you know, that social scene. And that's where she wanted it to be. She and my father agreed that he would take care of us, my sisters and me, and that my mom would kind of have her freedom there. And the house that he bought for her is literally across the street at 715 Ashbury. So once she became friendly with the dead and they were all in the same group of friends and everyone knew everyone. So those two houses that were directly across the street from each other just shared a kind of a ongoing stream of visitors and people. They were basically the open houses for the Haight-Ashbury community of that group. So it was really a a cool scene. Um, It was just an amazing place. But that's uh, basically the history of Olin Polly and and how the scene kind of moved with the dead into the city. But when my dad came to Olin Polly, that kind of came back into the equation as far as a place for the hippies and the diggers and the dead and the Grateful Dead, everybody to kind of go hang out when they wanted to go take a break and go up to the country and have a swim. Their paths crossed all the time. It's amazing. integrated uh, with them because I remember many times getting dressed up. We talk about it in the film and we would get to go and be and, and sit backstage. You know, I remember one time of taking an inadvertent acid trip because you never knew, you know, what, don't drink the punch, you know, but uh, you never knew where Owsley was uh, dosing people, but which was fine. I mean, it was mild. It wasn't, you know, nothing to worry about. Yes, I was uh, 11 years old, but um, it was, well. all, was all good. <laughs> oh, I was surrounded by, you know, caretakers and friends and family. As, you know, director of the, of the film, you know, I, I try to approach it in a non-judgmental way. 
and, and, and just let the people who are involved tell their story as it is. And that's how that's what we did. We, we just lay right. it out there. We'll let know? people that, make their own but, decision on how what what happened back then and, and how everyone has turned out. And like Greg said, some of the the kids who are now adults are uh, are okay with how you know all that went down and some are as who are now parents themselves can't even believe that their parents would have allowed that to happen so you have differing differing opinions and that's what a documentary is about is just to kind of put put the story and the information out there and we'll let people uh, take it for what they will started the project and we were doing research at uh, the Marin Library. The Civic Center Library. Civic Marin, Center yeah. Library and the librarian of the historical section, California historical section, said, oh, by the way, uh, you're more McCoy, you're, we have a recording of your father. The Grateful Dead approached us and they were looking for a place to practice because when a rock band practices, they bother everybody. They record all kinds of different people who are involved with the community and get their story down in, in a recording. And when we got that, that really set everything in motion. So I went back to my people and I said, listen, I, I can't do it. It became this internal monologue. I just can't ask her to leave. Of having this access to what was going on in his head. So anyway, the upshot was they ended up staying and they ended up blending into our family just fine. And we use that as, you know, a narrative device. But if we never had that, I don't know that we would have, we would have had a film. I agree. I mean, there's so many things that had to come together that we were just so fortunate. I mean, we were able to just have this wonderful archive of materials that, at that point, we knew we had a film, and then we started doing the interviews. And uh, again, we were so lucky to get people like Rock Scully, who, of course, tells that wonderful story about Jerry's acid trip, which we were able to get do the animation on, and just to cover that whole period of the Olin Polly scene and what Olin Polly had been before the Chosen Family came there, and how it related to the Grateful Dead and all that. So that was a great. Great thing. And uh, yeah, we we just, it took a while, you know, we just kind of put the film together ourselves. That was self-financed. So uh, again, we're just really happy that, that we've got distribution now and that it can get out there. People can buy it on our website. Oumpollymovie.com. Or on Amazon, they can download it up from iTunes. Um, Google Drive. Uh, yeah, or Google Play. Uh, they can go to their, they can ask their local library to get a copy of it. And also, I want to say, give a shout out to Dennis McNally, our, you know, wonderful Grateful Dead historian who connected us to, to start with and uh, thank him for making this possible. And thank you. It was a beautiful sunny day. I just stretched my hands up to the sky. And uh, pretty soon I heard a voice. It said... Stop trying to change the world, Don. There's no world to change. You have to change yourself. <laughs> 